you would please take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Leviticus chapter 17. As we continue on tonight in Leviticus, we're in Leviticus 17. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them into the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. Then you shall say to them, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from his people." And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement." Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may, an, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of the flesh, for the life of all flesh, is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, whether he is native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Now, this chapter that is before us this evening contains really two, two principal parts of instruction. One is instruction uh, for the purpose of guarding against idolatry. And then secondly, we have 
instructions with respect to blood, how the blood was to be regarded, how the blood was to be handled, and so on. And so verses 1 through 9 contain the instructions that guard against idolatry, and verses 10 through 16 contain the instructions concerning blood. And so we've got two main headings then as we look at the passage. First is flee from idolatry, and secondly, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So flee from idolatry, and the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so in verses 1 through 9, we have these instructions concerning the slaughter of an ox, a lamb, or a goat. And there's been some discussion among interpreters of this passage whether the instructions given here pertain only to to sacrifices, sacrifices that are offered, whether to the Lord or otherwise, or whether these pertain absolutely across the board to any slaughter of animals, whether sacrificial or simply for food. In other words, are the instructions here applicable only in the case of sacrifices, sacrifices given in worship, or do these instructions actually prohibit the slaughter of an animal in one's own tent, say, if the family wanted lamb chops for supper that night? Now, as I understand the passage, I think the instructions here pertain only uh, to the realm of sacrifice and have no bearing of uh, the butchering of one's own animals in their tent in the camp. I think the initial wording of verses 3 and 4 at first glance may appear to have a bearing on, on all animal killing, whether sacrificial or butchering for food. Nevertheless, the reasoning and the explanation that's given in verses 5 through 7, I think, strongly tip the scales in, and pointing in the other direction. And so according to verse 5, the reason why the law in verses 3 and 4 was given was so that they would bring their sacrifices to the Lord at the tent of meeting. And so, in the words of verse 7, that they would not offer their sacrifices to the goat demons. And I think perhaps the most critical of all is the language right at the end of verse 7, where it says, This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. In other words, the law here was a permanent part of the Mosaic legislation and was in force as long as the Old Covenant was in force. And... The fact of the permanence of this statute here and comparison, say, with the law given in Deuteronomy 12, 15 and following makes it reasonably clear, at least to my mind, that the law of Leviticus 17 is restricted only to the issue of the offering of sacrifices. And so Deuteronomy 12, 15 and following, this is what we're told there. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, Whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or new wine or the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your votive offerings which you vow or freewill offerings which you vow or the contribution of your hands." But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose. And so according to that law there in Deuteronomy 12, they could, they could slaughter meat in any of their towns and, and eat. That was, that was fine. They were free to have at it. But in regard to the things that were to be sacrificed and brought to the Lord, they were required to bring those things to the place where the Lord chose for the tabernacle to be. And I I take the the law there in Deuteronomy 12 then to be in harmony with with what's going on here. Namely, bring your sacrifices to the Lord at the place which he has chosen. And so the worship of God was not something in which everyone was 
free to do what was right in his own eyes. It was to be done at the place that the Lord chose, done at the tabernacle. It was to be brought to the priest. The priest is to sprinkle the blood of the peace offerings on the altar. The fat was to go up and smoke on the altar. And so the worship of the true God was not to be done by everyone at any place they may choose and in any way they choose. It was to be done in accordance with the commandments of God. And even still, this is the case. Obviously, in the New Covenant, there are not so many rules and not so many ceremonies as there were in the days of the Old Covenant. But nevertheless, we're not simply free to to do our own thing, whatever our imagination may suggest. And suppose then that whatever our imagination suggests to us is an acceptable way of worshiping the Lord in the assembly of his people. Rather, in the words of Hebrews 10, 28, and 29, we are to offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And those words in Hebrews 10, 28, and 29 pertain certainly to the daily Christian piety, our, our daily Christian lives as individuals, but also to our corporate worship when we gather together to worship God. We are to offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, and we do this then by doing those things which God has revealed and commanded to us in his word. So what do we find in the word with regard to New Testament worship? Well, we find things like uh, the instructions given to Timothy by Paul where he says in 1 Timothy 3.15, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so that's, that's what First Timothy is about. How are we to conduct ourselves in the Lord's house? Well, among those instructions, we find things like First Timothy 4.13, where Paul says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Scriptures are to be read publicly. Exhortations were to be made upon the basis of those Scriptures. The Scriptures were to be taught. They were to be explained. These were the things that Timothy was supposed to be doing when the church was gathered, and those instructions are still valid for us. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul says and urges Timothy that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So we need to be praying. And specifically, Paul urges that prayers be made for, for those who are in authority. And so uh, that's why Sunday morning I tried to pray for a government, government official of, of some kind, uh, usually. And so we, we want to pray for them. We want to pray uh, that we, as the people of God, can continue to, to serve God in, in peace and in freedom. And so we need to be praying. Likewise, we find instructions for, for corporate singing in places like Ephesians 5.19, where the command is that believers are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And so you notice there that in that command there's a, there's a horizontal aspect that we're uh, singing to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so there's a, uh, there's a sense in which I need to hear you sing and you need to hear me sing. And we need to be drawing uh, from the singing of one another the, the truths of the Word of God. And then also, there's a, there's a vertical aspect. As Paul says, you sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. And so we, we edify one another and we worship the Lord in song as well. Likewise, there are the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that are laid out for us in Scripture. And so you see the point. We're 
to be worshiping God in the way that he's told us to. We don't simply make up our own rules as we go along. And as I was, as I was thinking about this, I was, reminded of a, I was reminded of a John Wayne movie, actually. And uh, John Wayne and this guy are getting ready to, uh, to duke it out. The, the tension has been building uh, throughout the movie. They're fellow officers in the, in the Union Army. And uh, so they're, they're, they're getting, ready to, getting ready to have a fist fight. And the guy asks John Wayne, what are the rules? And John Wayne says, just make up your own. And the guy slugs him and decks him in the chin. And, and John Wayne falls over backwards. And the guy says to him, you said no rules. And so the point is, things, things, go off the rule, things go off the rails when we make up our own rules. And we don't, we don't want to do that. That's why the Lord gave instructions here to the Old Covenant people in Leviticus 17. That's why he's given us instructions in the New Testament. And so the, the instructions are not always specific as to how everything is to be conducted. There's, for instance, no cap on how long a sermon should be. Maybe you wish that cap was much shorter than I typically preach. I don't know. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there's no, no cap. There's no, uh, no specific rule on how many people are supposed to pray, how many songs are supposed to be sung, whether the elements of the Lord's Supper are to be passed out as people sit in the pews or whether people are supposed to come forward to the table. We know that things are to be done decently and in order, and that all things are to be done for edification, but at the same time we have to acknowledge that uh, that there's a, a great flexibility in the way that we do some of these things and the way that some of these commands are applied in our circumstances. And so, by the grace of God, let's, let's do those things which he has commanded, and let's do them in a decent and orderly manner unto edification. Now, here in Leviticus 17, while there may have been a sense in which this command was directed against people worshiping the Lord by sacrifice in their, on their own and in unauthorized ways, this command is certainly and clearly directed against idolatry that was going on at this point among the Israelites. And you can see the distinction between these two things because on the one hand, there may have been some people who were attempting to sacrifice to the Lord, but they weren't doing it in the prescribed way. They weren't taking it to the tabernacle in tent of meeting. They weren't intending to sacrifice an animal to a goat demon. They're attempting to worship the Lord, but they're doing it in the wrong way. And then on the other hand, you, may, uh, you apparently had people who were clearly committing idolatry and that they were sacrificing intentionally to these goat demons. And uh, just a, a note on this, uh, more broadly in the Old Testament, when we, when we read about sacrifices being made on the high places... It seems that you have to kind of look at the context in order to tell exactly what is meant by that. Because in some cases, it seems like sacrifices on the high places are a reference to unauthorized worship of the Lord. That seems to be uh, what's going on in 1 Kings 3.3, for instance. Solomon is at Gibeon, sacrificing uh, to the Lord on the high places. And uh, so it seems that he wasn't at the tabernacle where he ought to have been, but nevertheless... Uh, the Lord still loved him and was, was gracious to him despite his failure in that regard. Sometimes the worship on the high places is outright idolatry, where they're actually worshiping false gods. And so you kind of have to read, read, read the context carefully to, to see what's going on. And just to give a, a text for the outright idolatrous worship on the high place would be uh, 2 Kings 21.3. And so I wonder if 
the legislation here in Leviticus 17 goes both ways as well, where you might have had some people attempting to sacrifice to the Lord. They were just doing it in a way that they ought not do it. But certainly and clearly, we have directions against idolatry because in verse 7 we read that they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. Now this is seriously wicked stuff that is going on here. And I think it appears all the worse when we remember the context in which the laws of Leviticus were given. These laws were given while Israel was still at Mount Sinai. These laws were not given halfway through the 40 years in the wilderness. These laws were given while they're still at Mount Sinai. And the, uh, the chronology uh, given in the Old Testament here is that Israel was at Mount Sinai from Exodus 19 up until Numbers chapter 10. And that period is delineated in the third month after Israel uh, came out of Egypt. You see that in Exodus 19.1. And then the other bookend on the other end of that is Numbers 10.11, the second year of the second month on the 20th of that month. And according to Exodus 40, verse 2, the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was erected on the first day of the first month, which would have been the second year after they had come out. And that seems to have been the day when the cloud covered the tent of meeting and upon which the the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so that would be uh, roughly about 50 days prior to when they they left Sinai. Now, the, the point that I'm going for in all of that chronology is that... The people here are sacrificing to goat demons within a year or so of the time that they had been brought out of Egypt. Maybe 13 months, maybe 14 months, but it's it's within a year. They're sacrificing to these goat demons. Now these people, think about it, they had seen the outstretched and mighty hand of the Lord bringing judgment on the Egyptians. These were the people who had walked through the Red Sea and had seen Pharaoh's army destroyed behind them. These were the people who had experienced the miraculous uh, giving of water for for them in the wilderness. These people had experienced the terror of hearing the Lord speak on Sinai in such a way that they were begging that no further word be spoken to them. They're still at Sinai here when this law of chapter 17 is given. They were at the place where God had given the law, and yet some of them are out sacrificing to these goat demons. They were playing the harlot with false gods. To continue that that imagery, that imagery of harlotry that's given here, you might say that these people were going to prostitutes within the first year or so of their marriage. The Lord had established a covenant with them, and they had turned away and had violated the covenant. This word that is translated here as, as goat demon is defined as satyr, demon with he-goat form or feet, It's also been defined as the hairy one, a goat, buck, demon. This word shows up in the description of Jeroboam's idolatrous system uh, described in 2 Chronicles 11.15. One commentator described the idolatry going on here, and he put it this way. He said, apparently, they were earth spirits who were venerated as part of pagan fertility worship, like the satyrs of Classical mythology, they were envisaged as hairy he-goats. Since they were associated with the earth and the underworld, they were believed to reside in the open fields and the uninhabited grazing lands. As earth spirits, they were held to control the fertility of the animals that grazed on their terrain. 
They, were, they therefore had some claim on those animals. The blood from the firstborn cattle, sheep, and goats may have been drained into the earth to feed and appease them. By offering the blood uh, from these peace offerings to them, the Israelites rejected the Lord as the giver of life and prostituted themselves after the demons in an act of spiritual harlotry. Now this is very clearly dark and evil stuff, and this command is directed against it. Sacrifices are to be made to the Lord alone and not idolatry, and not, not to idols. And what this passage reminds us is that idolatry is the veneer that has been laid over the demonic realm. The idols, on the one hand, are lifeless statues. Right? There's no life in the statues themselves. The, to borrow the words of Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Although that is true, the lifeless statue is a veneer covering the demonic, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, he says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. The point is that the, the root of the worship of these false gods is demonic. And that we, as the people of Christ, must have nothing to do with it. In a culture that is pluralistic, and uh, by all appearances, more and more post-Christian. I think it stands to reason that we can expect to see more idolatry around us here in our country and in our cultures more than our parents and, and grandparents did. And while we want to, to love those idolaters, we want to see them want to Christ, while it is certainly fine and good to develop friendship with idolaters, we must be very clear that we have nothing to do with idolatry at all. We must not flirt with it. We must not act as if it is just a harmless folk tradition that we can appreciate or unto which we can make mild approaches. Idolatry is a veneer that covers the demonic realm. We need to stay far away from it. Hands off. As Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then the, the second thing that we see here in the chapter is the instruction with respect to blood, verses 10 through 16. Now, obviously, within these verses, on multiple occasions, we have the, the prohibition against eating blood. You see that in verse 10, verse 12, and verse 14. Now, for those who were with us several months ago, when we were back in Leviticus 3, we, we spoke on this, uh, on this issue of the prohibition of eating blood and considered whether this command is still binding upon Christian believers today or not. And so if you weren't here, I'll leave, I'll leave you hanging and let you know that that recording of uh, the Sermon on Leviticus 3 is on the website. Feel free to, uh, feel free to listen to it if you have questions about that. Um, and so I don't, I don't intend to, to rehash all of that uh, tonight. But what I do want to point out uh, tonight from these verses is the reason why blood was to be held in such regard by the Israelites. The reason for the command against eating blood and the reason for the strict judgment against those who ate it, 
that the Lord's face would be against them, that they would be cut off from their people. The reason for this is found in verse 11. In verse 11 we read this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This, this was the reason why blood was not to be eaten. This was the reason why, according to verse 13, even in the case of an animal that was killed uh, in hunting, the blood was to be poured out and to be covered with earth. This is why, according to verse 15, if anyone ate something which had died of itself or had been killed by other animals, such a person as to wash his clothes and would be unclean until evening. The reason for this is that the life of the flesh is in the blood and that the Lord had given it to them as a means by which they could make atonement for their souls on the altar. The life is in the blood. Now, what does that mean? I think, I think Matthew Poole uh, succinctly put it in a very helpful way when he said that life depends upon the blood, is preserved and nourished by it, and is extinguished when the blood is gone. Life depends upon the blood. Life is preserved and nourished by the blood. Life is extinguished when the blood is gone. And so this close connection then made blood the symbol of life. This close connection between life and blood made blood the symbol of life. And therefore, blood was given by the Lord as a means by which atonement could be made on the altar for their souls. In other words, there was a substitution going on. The Lord had ordained that the blood of animals could be offered up on the altar to make atonement for men and women. The blood that was sprinkled here was substitutionary. The blood was given in the place of the blood of the sinner. The life of the animal was given in place of the life of the sinner. The sinner deserved to die, deserved to have his blood shed for his sins, but God graciously ordained a means by which atonement could be made. He had given it to them on the altar to make atonement for their souls. And this was why blood was to be held in such a high regard. And for us as Christians, we can see quite clearly where, where this is going in God's great plan of salvation. Just uh, consider Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 10.4-7. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. The point is, Jesus is coming to take the place of these animals which had been sacrificed. They had been sacrificed pointing ahead to him. The Lord had given blood for the purpose of the atonement. But the atonement made in the Old Testament times upon the altar at the tabernacle was not actually efficacious. It did not actually take away sins. But these sacrifices pointed ahead to that great atonement which would be efficacious, which actually did, in fact, take away sins, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus described his blood this way in Matthew 26, 28. He said, This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Or John speaks of it in this way in Revelation 1, 5, that 
Jesus has released us from our sins by his blood. Or as we sing in the hymn, full atonement can it be. By the blood of Jesus, yes and amen, it can be. And it is. By shedding his blood and dying on the cross for us, Jesus gave his life for ours. He came that we may have life, right? This is John 10. He's come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. We deserve to die eternally, but because of what he has done for us, we are born again through the working of the Holy Spirit, and now we draw our life from Christ. And now, spiritually speaking, as we read in John 6 at the beginning, we eat the flesh of Christ and we drink his blood. And by that means, we have life. Jesus put it this way, John 6, 53 and 54. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in yourselves. Remember, as we see here, the life is in the blood. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, is what Jesus said. Now, obviously, the eating and drinking of Jesus' flesh and blood is is not literal in John 6. Jesus himself established the metaphor earlier in the chapter, verse 35, where he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. It is in coming to Christ that our hunger is satisfied. It is believing in Christ that our thirst is quenched. We eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood by coming to him and trusting in him. And then, of course, this spiritual eating and drinking, which is done by faith, trusting in Christ, this is then signified in the sacramental eating of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And in that, we're obviously not consuming the substance of Christ's flesh and blood. We're not doing that. But when we come to the Lord's Supper and receive the bread and the cup, what we're doing in eating and drinking is signifying that we are partakers of Christ's sacrifice for us because we trust in Him. We're signifying that we're drawing our spiritual and eternal life because we trust in Jesus. We don't draw our spiritual and eternal life by coming to the table. We draw our spiritual and eternal life by trusting in Christ. And coming to the Lord's table then signifies that, that we are trusting in Christ, that we are by faith daily as Christians feeding on the flesh of Christ, daily drinking Christ's blood. The life is in the blood. And by having an interest in the Savior's blood, by having a share in it, drinking his blood and trusting in him, that's how we have life. Apart from the blood of Christ, we do not have life. And so, beloved, be encouraged by this statement here, that the life is in the blood. Know that Christ's blood was shed to make atonement for you. He took your place. Just like those animals in the Old Testament took the place of the worshipers in the Old Testament times. But the difference The great difference is that those animals were merely the shadows, merely the forerunners of Christ. Christ is the reality, and his blood is efficacious for forgiveness. We talked about that this morning, that through faith we have the forgiveness of sins. We have life because we drink the blood of Christ, which is to say we have life because we trust in him. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your great plan of salvation. We know that we deserve to die, every one of us, because of our sins. And yet you have made a way by which our sins can be atoned for. Blood 
indeed was shed for our sins and has atoned for us. We praise you that in coming to Christ we can have life, we can have it more abundantly, and we can have true and eternal life, life which begins now and goes on forever. And so, Father, we are grateful. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, for his blood which was shed for us, which was shed in our place. Father, we we pray that you would help us, that we would truly worship you, and that as those brought from death to new life, we would continually offer ourselves up as living sacrifices who would be completely devoted to doing your will in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.